Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities with Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. A state Senate hearing this week on New York's legal cannabis rollout highlighted flaws in the system, including a proliferation of thousands of illegal pot shops operating across the state. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. The law to allow the sale of adult recreational marijuana was approved two years ago. Since then, bureaucratic roadblocks and court injunctions have slowed the program. As a result, only around two dozen legal retail shops have opened out of the more than 160 that were supposed to be in business by now. At the same time, possession and sales of marijuana has been decriminalized. As a result, an estimated 3,000 illegal pot shops are in business all across the state. State. At a hearing this week, state senators grilled Office of Cannabis Management's executive director, Chris Alexander, on steps his agency is taking to close the stores. Senator Brad Hoylman-Siegel said dozens of illegal stores are operating in his Manhattan district. It includes Hell's Kitchen and parts of Greenwich Village. A worker at Smoke City on 710 9th Avenue was shot in the leg during an attempted robbery and Uh, January. There was a shooting in front of a store called Forbidden Cannabis in Hell's Kitchen. An unlicensed shop at 423 9th Avenue was recently held up at gunpoint. There was a fire at an unlicensed smoke shop at 346 West 52nd. Hell's Kitchen Clouds, it's called. By the way, these shops should be shut down just for their bad puns. Hoylman Siegel says high school students are known to frequent some of the illegal shops, which he says market their products to children. He asked Alexander what his office plans to do about it. This is a public health issue, particularly for young people. Does it not deserve a more expedited process for addressing the illegal shops? Alexander answered. I absolutely agree, Senator. This absolutely is a significant threat to public health. And for the sales to minors, I mean, you know, that remains a felony offense. Uh, That is something that remains on the books. Um, I know, uh, you know, law enforcement, particularly in the city, have have done underage buys. Uh, and many of these shops. We want them as close as bad as you do. Hoylman Siegel, along with other Democratic senators who questioned the OCM staff, backed the original law to legalize cannabis. Senator Liz Kruger, who represents parts of Manhattan's east side, asked Alexander if the fines imposed for illegal operations at up to $20,000 a day are too low. If you close an illegal store and you take the product, but the fines aren't big enough to actually discourage people from just opening up again, and we did change the law to make the fines much bigger, then I don't believe it works at all, that you'll spend time and resources closing stores, and they'll say, oh, okay, they'll take the product, and two days later I'll reopen. Alexander told her that he agrees the fines are too small given the estimated profits that the illegal shops reap. Even at the $20,000 a day limit for some of these folks who are owning multiple operations across the city or across the state, it is still 
you know, a cost of doing business. The legislature in June enacted new enforcement powers to close down the illegal stores. Senator Andrew Gennardis questioned why, though, after OCM initiated over 300 actions on the shops, just 16 have been closed for good so far. That seems like a startlingly low number, given the fact that we all recognize there are thousands of, of these illegal shops around the state. The hearing comes as the online news publication The City reports that OCM has put its hearing process to levy fines against illegal pot shops on hold, saying they don't have enough staff. Alexander told senators that his office plans to restart the hearings, but he says he doesn't know the exact date. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. This week, I spoke with New York State Assembly Member Deborah Glick, a Democrat and chair of the Committee on Environmental Conservation. We spoke about legislation to protect birds, bees, and other pollinators, banning killing contests and the Package Waste and Reduction Act. I do want to let your listeners know that I became the new chair of the Environmental Conservation Committee this year. And so it was a very busy year getting our arms around all of the bills in the committee, but we were very focused on A7640, which is a bill I have with Senator Hoyle, uh, Hoyleman Siegel. Uh, it balances the harm that neonicotinoids do to pollinators like birds and bees uh, with their effectiveness to manage pests, particularly invasive species in the agricultural space. Uh, The prohibition would be on the routine use of seeds coated with these neurotoxins, uh, which persist in the soil and we believe is vital to protecting birds, bees, uh, water quality, and uh, other creatures. I mean, there there may be many factors involved in the dramatic loss of birds and bees and other pollinators like butterflies, but once what are referred to colloquially as neonics came on the scene in the 90s, their indiscriminate and prophylactic use impacts the entire plant. It's a systemic chemical and these chemicals eventually are consumed by pollinators, poisoning them, and can persist in the soil, run into our streams. They are areas where they have been detected not only in water streams, but in mammals that have either been in those fields or drinking the water adjacent to those fields. So there are concerns that the Farm Bureau has expressed And we did amend the bill to, we believe, address concerns that were raised by the Farm Bureau. So it's on the governor's desk. It is a crucial piece of protecting our water, soil, and the vital role that our pollinators play in ensuring that we do, in fact, have crops. Assemblymember Glick, what's the chance and what is your sense that your fellow Democrat, the governor, Kathy Hochul, will sign the measure? I'm sure that she's hearing from the chemical industry and 
and from the Farm Bureau, but I know that she is also hearing very much from organic farmers that don't want any of the fugitive residue on their properties and from individuals in the environmental community that believe strongly that this is a minor step in protecting it. It is about seeds coated for corn, soybean, and wheat. It allows for use for specific invasive species. It also allows that if there is an insufficient supply of untreated seeds, that that's taken into account by the Department of Environmental Conservation. So as I said in the beginning, We believe the bill balances the concerns raised, but the importance of ensuring that we reduce the casual and regular use of these neurotoxins. Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about is recognizing that we live in an ecosystem, that all these things are connected. And you mentioned them, you know, it affects the seed, the plant, and it gets into the soil. So we know what happens when there are pollutants that impact the earth and the humans on it. Why then, my question, I think you hinted at that, why then don't people come together since this is the health of all of us, the children and the earth, to solve the problem? Is it just because of greed? Is it because of money? Is it because the producers want to maximize their business interests? Well, you know, I think that there have been preliminary studies by Cornell that indicate that it does not increase the yield. And frankly, you know, I don't want to, certainly not to farmers, attribute greed. They have one of the toughest jobs in the state. But certainly chemical companies and seed companies can charge more for seeds that are coated. And the chemical industry has done a lot of damage, but it is their business. So they will continue to press that this is the most important thing and that it's necessary. And farmers, of course, are concerned. We've seen climate change affect the way in which they can. Sure. It impacts their ability to make a living. Excuse me for interrupting, Assemblymember Glick. Just an article in the Times yesterday I read about apple farmers in Warwick being impacted by heavy rains that have caused a problem with many of their crops. We had a very late killing frost in May, and that was very damaging, followed by a lot more rain this year at perhaps inopportune times. So it's always a challenge for farms over which nobody has any control, and we have seen changes. So I appreciate their concern that some other change could negatively impact them. We believe that in the end, the continued use of these neurotoxins, which persist in the soil, are actually damaging to their future, as well as to the future of birds, bees, butterflies, etc. Sure. And many of these farmers, I think we would both agree, that suffer are the small farmers, not the big you know, factory farms that have the output and the production to survive. It's these small farms that inevitably suffer the most when you have a damaging rainstorm that kills crops, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that while we've seen a loss of dairy farms, I think there may be a slight uptick in smaller farms that focus on vegetables. And we have young farmers who want to get into the business. Some of them find it challenging to find good land that's affordable for them particularly now that they're in competition with energy producers looking to buy large areas for solar farms. It has definitely been an issue in a lot of counties in upstate New York. Uh, I think there's a way to do both. 
Um, but I think that there is concern that the energy companies have big dollars and it's uh, very seductive for someone struggling to give up some part of what is very good farming land uh, to uh, solar uh, production uh, for the for the stabilization of the farm. So yes, the small farmers are the backbone of our economy in uh, the agricultural space in New York, uh, and they do need um, assistance in a number of areas. But some of that includes uh, the long-term view that we all need pollinators in order to ensure the crops are able to germinate. We're speaking with the chair of the Committee on Environmental Conservation, that's State Assemblymember Deborah Glick, a Democrat. Well, Assemblymember Glick, let's move on to another environmental bill I know you're focusing on, which is the banning of killing contests. Tell our listeners who may not know what these are, what they are. Well, they're wildlife killing contests. The bill would preclude organized contests where people compete for prizes by killing the most of a particular species or the heaviest example or the smallest animal within a specified time frame. Nothing in the bill, which I share with Senator Kennedy from the Buffalo area, would ban any farmer or landowner from killing a nuisance animal that's predating on their livestock or on companion animals within, obviously, the regulations of the Department of Environmental Conservation. This is totally focused on organized contests. It doesn't impact hunting deer, bear, or turkey, which are very regulated hunting seasons. And it doesn't impact a fish derby because fish are not considered wildlife. That's why there is the U.S. Wildlife and Fish Service. And the state is charged with protecting and preserving our natural resources, which includes wildlife. The bill is widely supported by lots of organizations from environmental advocates to the Adirondack Council and support from individual farmers and hunters who believe, particularly hunters, who feel that this gives hunting a negative image, that it upsets the balance of nature in an area, killing all of the predators in a particular area is not helpful, certainly with coyotes. The more you kill, the more you spur reproduction, so you can actually ultimately wind up with more coyotes. So we believe it's an appropriate measure for our time to ensure that we don't make the killing of wildlife a contest. From that bill to another that you're now working on and focusing on that's been in the news recently. And if anyone gets a package in the mail, I won't mention from any particular place, but it usually takes me about 25 minutes to open it because there's layers and layers of packaging. A lot of it is plastic. We know that each and every one of us has plastic in our bloodstream. Go look it up. And to that end, you're trying to reduce the packaging, the waste that wraps around all of our products most of the time. It is Senator Harkum and I. He chairs the Senate Committee on Environment Conservation. We uh, each sponsor in our own houses the bill, the Packaging Waste and Reduction Act um, and Infrastructure Act. It is intended to create a system whereby there is an incentive to reduce the uh, amount of packaging waste and at the same time 
relieve the burden on taxpayers through municipalities that are paying to dispose of the waste. And some of the waste, as you mentioned, really can't be disposed of. Plastic, there are very few types of plastics that are actually recyclable. Some are, but most are not. And the fossil fuel industry, plastic is a byproduct of petroleum refinery. And they see that the that fossil fuels are being phased out over the next, you know, number of years to decades. And so they are not just shifting their focus, but really doubling down on plastic uh, manufacturing. And the bill, we had a hearing on it last week, heard from a lot of different players in the field. The point of it is to require manufacturers to pay into a fund. It's frequently referred to as an extended producer responsibility. They pay into a fund, and there are uh, fees that are based on the amount of waste they produce, and the fees reduce over time based on the reduction of the production of that packaging. And so it's uh, decidedly arranged as a carrot. The less you produce, the less you pay. And if you create a refillable product, uh, and there are many of these now appearing in the marketplace, uh, you don't pay anything. And if you're a very small manufacturer, you're not captured in the legislation. That's Democratic State Assembly member Deborah Glick. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Advocates are raising alarms over a change in definition they say could lead to anchorages opening up in the Hudson River, following congressional action that banned new anchorages in 2021 after a years-long effort. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard explains. In 2019, the U.S. Coast Guard scrapped a plan to establish new anchorage sites in the Hudson River following widespread community opposition. Two years later, as part of the National Defense Authorization Act, Congress banned new anchorages between Yonkers and Kingston. But now some fear that another battle is ahead. In August, New York Congressman Pat Ryan, a Democrat from the 18th District and former Ulster County executive, wrote to Coast Guard Commander Zeta Merchant, outlining his concerns with a change of definition to the boundaries of the Port of New York. Ryan wrote, quote, As a result, regulations on anchoring would not apply north of Terrytown, and commercial vessels would be permitted under inland navigation rules to anchor anywhere for any length of time so as they do not impede traffic and display a light at night, end quote. This week, Ryan's office released the Coast Guard's response from Director of Marine Transportation Systems Michael Emerson, dated October 17th. Emerson writes that the Coast Guard is, quote, committed to ensuring navigational safety, environmental protection, and the efficient flow of commerce on this critical waterway, end quote. 
Emerson continues that he has asked for a, quote, collective evaluation on the outcomes resulting from the clarification of the geographic reach of the Port of New York anchoring regulation, end quote, and that the, quote, Coast Guard will be arranging meetings with a local non-governmental organization and the Hudson River Safety Navigation Committee this month to further discuss and understand the issues raised, unquote, over the change. Ryan characterizes the Coast Guard's response as woefully insufficient. Ned Sullivan, president of Scenic Hudson, says it's reminiscent of the last dispute. Back when the Coast Guard proposed those new anchorages, the entire Hudson Valley came together. This was a true point of consensus, whether it was the business community, real estate, environmental groups, elected officials, citizens, residents, everyone opposed the use of the Hudson River as a parking lot. Sullivan promised a similar effort from advocates and other stakeholders now. We will be there in force and uh, we will be seeking uh, the Coast Guard's reversal of this action. A group of municipalities that draw drinking water from the river, known as the Hudson 7, are also concerned. In a statement included in a press release from Ryan's office, Hudson 7 Chair and Rhinebeck Village Mayor Gary Bassett said, quote, We want restrictions to limit any risk of accidents and spills of hazardous products in the reach of our intakes that could imperil our water supply, end quote. Environmental organization Riverkeeper is also requesting details, according to boat captain John Lipscomb. You know, Riverkeeper has written the Coast Guard stating that we believe that their, um, their action that they've just taken um, is an illegal action. Lipscomb says Riverkeeper wants the Coast Guard to rescind its change to the Port of New York definition until proper environmental and administrative studies are completed and reviewed. He adds he does not believe the Coast Guard intends to skirt existing restrictions on anchorages. Riverkeeper um, is not suggesting in any way that that um, the Coast Guard did this definition change in order to circumvent what happened back in 20, 2016. We're not suggesting that at all. Um, they are a bureaucracy. They have their reasons for doing what they do. And we are concerned about the consequences of what they've done, but we're, we're not suggesting that it's any kind of, a, of an end run around what happened in 2016. WAMC has requested comment from the U.S. Coast Guard on its plans to gather input from stakeholders. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. Services and maintenance workers at Bard College have ratified a pair of new contracts, averting a strike and ending months of negotiations. The Legislative Gazette's Jesse King with the details. The three-year agreements include hourly wage increases for roughly 110 workers with SEIU Local 200 United. Robert Dixon, a carpenter at the private college in Annandale and Hudson, says it's the first time Bard's Environmental Services Specialists, or janitorial staff, and its building and groundskeepers have bargained together on a deal. It feels great. It feels like we, um, you know, we definitely achieved something. It has been um, long. It's been quite intense sometimes. Overall, we're, we're, we're satisfied with what's over and um, that uh, we, can, we can move on now. 
Dixon says both groups sought wage increases to keep up with high inflation and better compete with other colleges in the region. Effective immediately under the new agreements, the starting rate for environmental services workers will jump from $15.50 an hour to $19 an hour, with another increase to $19.50 an hour by 2025. According to the union, that means about 45 environmental services workers will automatically receive raises between $2.25 an hour and $3.50 an hour, retroactive to July 1st. Building and grounds workers, meanwhile, will receive an 11% wage increase over the next three years. That's a significant jump from what the college had proposed in a counteroffer earlier this month. Under that plan, Bard suggested starting janitorial staff at $18.50 an hour, with a 25 to 3% wage increase for building and grounds workers. Colleen Alexander, vice president for administration at Bard, spoke with WAMC on October 2nd. We looked at about um, 12 different schools within within, I would say, a 100-mile radius, including all of the SUNY schools, this is very much on par with, with other colleges, and or more. In a new statement to WAMC, Bard says it is pleased to have reached an agreement with both parties, adding it looks, quote, forward to moving forward and working together to ready the campus for winter and beyond, end quote. Both parties engaged a mediator from the Federal Mediation Conciliation Service to help with the last three sessions leading up to the October 23rd ratification deadline. Dixon says building and grounds workers unanimously authorized a strike on October 11th, but it never got to that. Bridget Maple, a Bard College gardener and vice chair of its building and grounds union, says health care was a key sticking point during the negotiations. Bard initially wanted workers to contribute more to their health insurance, even those under individual coverage plans, which Maple says have typically been covered by the college. What the membership told us from the beginning was that health care was number one, um, and that was really our big battle, was to keep health care prices the same. Um, and once the college allowed us not, you know, took that off the table as far as negotiations go, and um, then we could really have a serious conversation and negotiate wages better. Maple says the new contracts keep health insurance contributions the same, maintaining college-funded health insurance plans for individuals in both departments. Overall, Dixon calls the contracts a, quote, historic moment for Bard and for the two unions, which he hopes will continue bargaining together in the future. He credits constant communication between the workers, union solidarity, and community support for the outcome. At one point, he says students rallied on campus in support of staff. We had a lot of uh, people pledging their um, assistance and um help should things come to you know ahead with the college which it didn't um but there was a lot of uh, community-wide support for us i just wanted to thank those people for their support for the legislative gazette i'm jesse king And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Look for program number 2344. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics for the Legislative Gazette. I'm David Gustina. Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from 
United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org.